0: Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and also the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is God's Word. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we come to you remembering today your beloved Son, who we know is at your right hand and is in perfect communion with you, we come today to remember and celebrate what you have done in him and through him. We come knowing that you together have sent the Spirit to us, and the Spirit even now dwells within our hearts, dwells within our midst. We would ask that that Spirit would take this, Your Word, and would cascade a shower of light. We would see and behold the wonders that You have within not only these texts, but many texts throughout the Scripture that we'll consider as we strive by faith to behold again the beauty of Jesus Christ. Know the hearts here in this room. Know the ones that don't know Christ. Know the ones that know Christ but have lost a sense of His beauty. And know those today who are renewed and strong in faith. And know the wide continuum of diversity between those poles. And in proportion to what you have planned, come and to bless your people. That we today might know you deeper and more profound than we've ever known you before. Hear this prayer and have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was on October the 31st in 1517 when Martin Luther, our favorite Augustinian monk, nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door in Germany. Those 95 theses, as they've come to be known, well, we know if I were to quiz you on the 95 theses this morning, don't worry, I'm not going to, but if I were to quiz you on the 95 theses this morning, how many would you know? <laughs> Very few, if any, right? It's one, those, uh, it's one of those documents, maybe you've heard the quote, you know what a classic is? Right? A classic is a book that everyone lauds and no one reads. 95 theses, I think, fall into that category. Everyone lauds them. Everyone praises them. Oh, the 95 theses. Wittenberg church door. It's a great moment. What are the 95 theses? I have no idea. I have no idea what they, what they are. If you do know any of the 95 theses, you know the first one. And, and in the first of the 95 theses that, that, that Luther penned, that was nailed now to that church in, in Wittenberg, spoke of repentance. Uh, That repentance is a reality not just for the beginning of the Christian life where we come into knowledge of our sin for the first time and we confess it before the Lord and we turn from it unto Christ that we might follow Him. That repentance is not just a one-time act that we do at the very beginning of the Christian life, but that all of the Christian life is repentance the whole thing is repentance every day is a path of of repentance if if it if it feels that way for you that's actually a very good good sign if you acknowledge that today and tomorrow and and Tuesday and Wednesday and should the lord continue to tarry and keep you alive that each day you will find that you will have sin that will need to be turned from and that the only place where you can find a true satisfaction for that sin and the power for overcoming that sin is at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and that only in Christ do you find the grace and the power to begin to overcome that sin that you might endeavor after new obedience. If you find that that's a daily discipline in your life, well, welcome to the Christian life. That's what it is. And part of what Luther was seeking to drive home in that late medieval period was the the fact that the gospel is not just good for those who are unbelievers who need to come to know Christ, but that the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, is for every Christian every day of every moment of their life. And on a day like today where we come to remember the Protestant Reformation and this great renewal movement that the Holy Spirit of old, using men... Uh, brought forth a recovery of the gospel and crystallized in greater detail the specifics of the gospel. We come to celebrate that recognition. But we're not here to celebrate men. We're not here to bow down, so to speak, to the patron Saint Martin Luther. He would well, he would turn over in his grave if we were doing something like that. He would want me to do what we're going to do, and that is preach Christ today, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The two texts that are before you Acts chapter 4 and 1st Timothy chapter 2 you'll notice they're not from Malachi. We have been working our way through a series in the prophet Malachi. We're taking a one week hiatus in that series to focus on the gospel of Christ in commemoration and remembrance of of this uh, Reformation Sunday. These two texts are um, simply selections of a theme, really what we might call a more topically oriented message today. These two texts from Acts chapter 4 and 1 Timothy 2 are representative of many texts that speak of the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that Christ alone is the means, the person, the Savior through whom We find salvation. We live in a day and time where there are many gurus, uh, many different philosophies, many different religions that would say to you and to me, there are many different roads up the mountain. Maybe you find it at the feet of Buddha. Maybe you find it at the feet of, of Gandhi. Uh, maybe you, you find it through the, the church of this or that, or this gathering or that gathering, or this program or that program, or this method or that method. Yeah, but th- we all have our own little way up the mountain, so to speak, in salvation. Well, Christianity can't be lumped in with that group in our own day and time because Christianity argues forthrightly, and you see it clearly here in Acts 4 and 1 Timothy 2, that there is only one mediator between God and man. There is no other salvation than in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We come and unequivocally and unashamedly claim the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means that if you're outside of Christ, you have not savingly embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know who He is and what it is that He's done. And you've not trusted in Him alone for salvation. We want to say to you, you are not saved today. For there is no salvation other than that which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's becoming an increasingly hard message to declare in our day and time, but one in which the church must stand strong and never waver in. I want you to know that you may not know Christ yet today. Today is a day to know Him. And today is a day where by the power of His Spirit through His Word, He's coming to make Himself known. Known whether you have known Him and have veered from Him, known Him of whether you need renewal in Him, which may be the case today, or have never known Him. Today He's coming to you. And He will speak to you in and through His, his Word. This was a clarion call during the time of the Protestant Reformation. There's an emphasis, and you'll see that in the, well, in the sermon title, No Other Name, Salvation is in Christ Alone. That alone, in some ways, marks the Reformation. The five quote-unquote solas of the Reformation. Some of you may have heard that phraseology before. The five solas of the Reformation. That is that we believe that the Scripture alone is God's Word and authority by which we know that He is truly revealed. That it's through faith alone that we are saved. That that alone is the instrument through which the Lord uses by which we are saved. And it comes through grace alone, solely as a gift from Almighty God, that grace alone, not by our own works, our earnings, our merits, but solely by grace alone are we saved. And it's in Christ alone. He alone is the Savior, the person in whom we are saved. And thus we live solidea gloria. We live solely by the glory or for the glory of God alone. Because of all of those things which are true, that d- distinguishes what the Protestant Reformation was really about, and today I want to talk specifically about this in Christ alone thing. In Christ alone, that He is the one and only mediator between God and and man. Now seeing this, Martin Luther is sometimes quoted, and I think appropriately so, to have argued deeply for the aloneness as Christ is our Savior. And he did that by pointing our attention to the Bible. He he wrote this, Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. And by saying that, Uh, Luther was arguing that if you're going to understand the Scriptures, you're going to have to drive to its central message, that is, of Christ and Him crucified. That's the language of the Apostle Paul in the letter of 1 Corinthians. But it's not just the center message of the Bible, it's the circumference of the Bible, meaning that every text in some way, shape, or form is driving towards that center. That the full scope of the Bible speaks of Christ and of Him Alone, It is the heartbeat of the Scripture's message. Now, in saying that, Luther is, of course, just echoing what John would say in John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking to the spiritually blind Jewish leaders. And he says to them, listen, you search the Scriptures. I know that you do. You're students, so to speak, of the Word. You search the Scriptures because you think in them there is eternal life. And there is eternal life in the Scriptures, but Jesus is saying you've searched them in vain. He says it's those very Scriptures that testify about Me. It's those very Scriptures that testify about Me. He is the center and the circumference of, of the Bible. Of course, this is what Paul said. This is what Paul said as he was visiting Rome and witnessing to the crowds. He, he preached to them. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 28, it says he preached to them from morning to evening. Now, I just want to make a quick note about about that. The Apostle Paul preached all day long. He preached all day long. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm just saying there would be biblical precedent for preaching all day long, and if at some point I do preach all day long, I will reference this again, Acts 28. He preached from morning to evening. Here's what he preached. He explained to them the kingdom of God, and from the law and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. He tried to set before them a compelling argument for Jesus Christ from the law and the prophets, from from the whole of the Old Testament, which at that point, of course, was the whole of the, the Bible. That was what was accessible to Paul, the New Testament, as being being written. So I want you to see this centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the scriptures so that you can understand the nature of why salvation is in Christ alone. That there is no other name by which we may turn for salvation. Now, interestingly, though, one quick observation about this, unlike so many other religions then, like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, Christian faith is not a set of principles. It's not a a set of of beliefs. It's not just practices to be obeyed. Now, let me ask you, does Christianity have beliefs? It does. Does it have principles? It absolutely does. Does it have practices to be obeyed? It it does. But at the center of the faith, it's not just a list of beliefs. It's not just a, a list of practices to be obeyed. At the very center of Christianity and what separates it apart from every other religion is that there's a person. There's a a person to be trusted in, and there's a person to be followed. At the very core of Christianity is a person, which is why our our faith is not just a series of beliefs or actions. It's actually a relationship with a, a person, a Savior, a King, a Lord, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The saving power of faith, Benjamin Warfield writes, resides not in faith itself, but it resides in the object of our faith, the Almighty Savior on whom our faith rests. Now when we look at Acts chapter 4 and 1 Timothy 2 and many other passages related to Christ in the Scripture, I want to really just ask a question this morning and answer it in several ways with you. And the question I want to ask, really gleaning here from 1 Timothy 2, is what's so special about Jesus Christ? What's so special about Jesus Christ? We talk about him all the time. What's so special about Jesus Christ that it qualifies him alone to be the mediator between God and man? What's so special about Jesus Christ That it qualifies Him to be the mediator between God and man. I think that question arises out of these two texts which we're looking at. There is no salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's a singularity here, an exclusiveness, that we can't look to anyone but Christ for salvation. What qualifies Him to be our Savior, to be our mediator? The one who uh, saves us and brings us to God? Well, I want to answer that question, and I want to look at it in four ways. And Maybe you can remember it this way. I want you to see that what qualifies him is that he's not like us. He's, He's not like us. That's number one. And I want you to see what qualifies him is that, secondly, he's like us in a very different sense. He's not like us, but He's like us. And then the third way, I want you to see that He's better than us. He's better than us. This qualifies Him to be a mediator between God and man, and I want you to see, fourthly, that He loves us. I want you to see that He's not like us, and He's like us. He's better than us, and He loves us. I want you to see those four things as we consider the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean By the fact that He's not like us. He's not not like us. Well, in short order, I mean that He is divine. He he is divine. You know how the Gospel of John starts, right? After Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, John begins his Gospel telling of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he borrows from the opening lines of the book of Genesis when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now as he's speaking about this word, this logos, in John chapter 1, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's connecting the Lord Jesus Christ with that voice at the beginning of creation. The voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. That voice, that logos, that word from which all of the created order is made and sustained, that word is none other than this person that I'm about to tell the story of here in my gospel it's none other than Jesus, who was born in a little outhouse of an inn in a place called Bethlehem, this so-called carpenter's son who was from Nazareth. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Son of God. He is divine. Now, if we saw that in John, and only in John, we'd be Well, we'd be tempted to question it, but all throughout John's Gospels, throughout the other Gospels, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see corroboration. we see agreement, we even see it from the lips of Jesus Himself. In John 10.38, as Jesus is in one of those toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, which He seemed to always be in, in some way, shape, or form, He said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean we're really close, like we're best buds. We're really tight. We spend a lot of time together, me and the Father. No, that's not what he's saying. He's making a claim that he and the Father are of the same reality, the same substance or essence. They're divine. I'm divine like the Father. We know that the Pharisees heard that because, well, the crowds that were listening, you know what they tried to do at this moment? They tried to pick up stones and stone him. And the claim that as he made that claim that he was blaspheming, the only problem was that he wasn't. He was actually telling the truth. He is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. So much so that, well, Philip and and Thomas, two people that struggled sometimes to wrap their heads around the person of Jesus, uh, Philip would come to Jesus and say to him, you know, listen, you're amazing. Uh, We've enjoyed... Uh, Getting to know you and following you like the the miracles you do, pretty spectacular. But I tell you, if you could just show us the Father, it would be enough for us. Right? Here's the he's still questioning a little bit. If you just show us the Father, I think we'll I think we're gonna be okay from there. And Jesus' response is Whoever seen me has seen the Father. Or, Or Thomas, when he says, You know, unless I see the hands where the nails went in, Unless I see the side where the sword pierced him. I, I'm not going to believe this at all. And then as soon as Jesus walks into the room, do you remember what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. He immediately knew. All throughout we see this in the New Testament. And we understand that Jesus here is not like us. He's divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's is the Son of, son of God. And Well, it's necessary that He would be in order to be our mediator. You see, why is there no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? Why is there only one mediator between God and man? Because we need a divine man. We need someone who can faithfully represent God to us. In the fullest and and complete way. And no one can fully and completely represent God to us but... God. Now, why is it necessary? Because, well, if he's going to be a mediator, what's going to need to happen? He's going to have to receive the penalty for sin. He's going to have to receive the unmitigated wrath of God. And I want to ask you, is there any ordinary person who can receive the wrath of God and survive? Is there anybody that can do that? who could serve as a savior, either for themselves or for anyone else. Is there anyone that can do that? There's there's no one that can do that, you see. The only one who can receive the wrath of God in an unmitigated fashion and then survive the wrath of God is God himself. He's the only person who can receive it. This is why Jesus must be divine. He must come in divinity. We need a savior who is not like us in order that we might be saved. And this is what qualifies Jesus to be our mediator. He is, number one, he's not like us. But the amazing thing is we don't just need a Savior who is not like us in divine. We also need a Savior at the same time who is just like us. This is point two. He's like us. What do I mean when I mean that? Well, I obviously don't mean with regards to divinity. I'm speaking with regards to humanity. We need someone who is both fully God and in every right and human sense, fully man. And we could go straight back to John, can't we? In that same beautiful prologue in John chapter 1, where after he borrows those words from Genesis 1 to speak of the divine with regards to creation, that down the way in John chapter 1, there in verse 14, we read that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same eternal Word that existed with God as God from before the foundation of the world took on flesh and became man. This, as the theologians would put it, this eternal Son of God added to Himself a human nature. Added to Himself a human nature. Now, when He did that, did He cease being God? Class? No. No. He did not cease being God. And we know that because, well, tradition tells us. We know that because the church tells us. You know that because your grandmother believed that. You know that because the Bible tells you that. You know that because in Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul writes, All the fullness of deity, catch this, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Here is the Son of God, now becoming the Son of Man. Uh, This one who is, well, of the DNA of the flesh of Mary, who likely, well, looked like her. Here is this one who went through a a gestation period, who was born, who like any of us developed. We saw that in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature with God and with man. He was filled with wisdom. He experienced normal human phenomena, didn't he? We know that he grew tired and he stopped at Jacob's well in John chapter 4. We know that his stomach growled, don't we? When he was fasting in the wilderness, he got hungry, we're told. His tongue was parched on the cross. He said, I am thirsty in John chapter 19. I think of it, Jesus Jesus knew what it was like to be loved by a mom. He knew what that was like. He knew what it was like to experience the, the grief of a friend's death like Lazarus. He, he knew what it was like to be disappointed when one of your own disciples denies knowing you. He undoubtedly knew what it was like to experience the sorrow of betrayal when one of his well-owned disciples betrayed him. You know when he pressed? When the Roman soldiers pressed that crown of of thorns on his head, it hurt. He had physical pain when those nails were driven into his hands and his his feet and the sword when it pierced his, his side. Everything that is true about what it means to be a human being was true about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very good news. Because we said that it's, Absolutely important that God is represented to man if reconciliation is going to happen. But it's also just as important that man is represented to God. That man is faithfully represented to God. We need a Savior, a qualified Savior who is not just divine but is also fully man in every way that man is man. Many of the heretical teachings... Throughout church history have diminished the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very hard for us to wrap our heads around, isn't it? We do think of him as sort of like Captain Marvel or something. He's he's got superpowers, you know, if he lived today, he would he would be, you know, on you know one of those cartoons or, or something and he would you know, he would he would be leveling everybody, you know, with with all these superpowers, right? Um, we think of him in this way, and when we think of him in this way, we do, well, we do, we do an injustice there. Because he's, he's a man. He's a man. He's representing us. You know, sometimes that teaching would say, oh, you know, he had a body, but he really didn't have a human mind. Well, in the body, well, it was a little bit different than yours and mine. You know, it was more like an apparition. It's more like a hologram of some sort, you know, like a, like a human hologram. That's really, he looked like a, he looked like a human, but he wasn't really a human, right? These are the kind of teachings that swirled in the early church because they were wrestling, right, with this complex, fully God and and fully man reality. But then, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus helps us a little bit here, one of the early church fathers. He says, this statement that I think is something we should ponder, whatever has not been assumed, or taken up, whatever Jesus did not assume or take up, if he didn't take up a human mind, didn't take up a human soul, didn't take up a human body, if Jesus didn't do that, then that part of us can't be healed. That part of us can't be saved. Because that that part didn't receive the judgment. You see, if we're going to be fully saved, we need a fully A full man, with all of the the components and the parts, being able to represent us. Whatever was not assumed or taken up has not been healed. And so as we look at the reality of who Christ is, we have to draw the conclusion, don't we? Full divinity in bodily form, says Paul. He is qualified to be our mediator because he is not like us. He is divine, and he is like us. He is human. Now, some of you in the back of your, your mind, you have, well, I kind of hope he's not human, at least not in the way that I'm human. And you're on to something. I think I know what you're thinking about, and you're anticipating point three. He is not like us. He is like us. He is better than us. He is better than us. At meaning that he is righteous. He is righteous. You remember at the end of John, you know the strange section in John where there's an earthquake and the graves open up and it gets really dark and we commentators are just like, Whoa, what do we do with this? You know, it's just a wild section in, in John. And one, of the, one of the great statements there was the Roman soldier who, who sees all this happen and he says, surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man was righteous. Here, out of the mouth of a Roman soldier, the acknowledgement of that. Peter, reflecting back on Jesus' life, this is what he says. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's Jesus. What qualifies him to be a a mediator? Well, he qualifies him to be a mediator is that he's not like us. He's like us, and he's better than us. He appeared to take away sins, John writes, but in him there was no sin no sin whatsoever we talk about the impeccability of the lord jesus christ there was not even the slightest tinge of sin can you imagine that well no you can't you can't imagine that you can can you imagine going through a day and not having like a bad thought or an idle word or a or or, or an action or even a motivation you know you know you know it's even the internal operations of your your heart that are inclined towards sin are sin Jesus didn't have those. You can't imagine that. You, you can't imagine that. He was, was completely perfect. And now when you hear that, you're like, see, I knew he was Captain Marvel. I knew it. That's a superpower. And you think to yourself, well, that's true of humanity. So he's not like us. No, that was not true of the essence of humanity. The essence of humanity was created upright. We were created in the image of God. We were meant to be righteous and in perfect communion with the Lord. Sin is an invader. It's not of the essence of who you are. It's an outside taint. It's a tarnish. That's not the reality of humanity. And so he must come not like us, like us, and better than us. That's absolutely important. In order for him to be a a true mediator. And so you're thinking to yourself, yes, he just floated through life. Oh, it must have been so easy. Have you read his life? Have you read your New Testament? You read, if you read the Gospels and you think, oh, Jesus' life was easy, he floated through it. There's no angst here. There's no concerns here. It just was so, he just, it was also simple for him. No, it wasn't. He had struggles and difficulties and temptations, the kind of which are true of our own, Human experience. Hebrews 4:15 says it in just so many words. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. What an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is. Do you know that as you're struggling with sin, you can speak to your intercessor, your savior, at the right hand of the Father, and you can speak to him as someone who knows. Who knows who can sympathize with your weaknesses. He's not cold and removed. He's intimate and he's, so to speak, in the trenches. He's one who has spanned heaven and earth in his love. Not like you, like you, better than you. And the reason he did all of that, right? It's because he loved you. Why did he go to this trouble, right? He didn't have to leave heaven. Things actually, to be quite honest, were going really well for him there. It, what, there wasn't something missing in his life where he was just like, oh man, if I could just get what earth has. oh, I think I'll become a man and spend time with these people. They're such great people, right? No, he, he was completely fu- fulfilled and satisfied within himself in the glorious fellowship that he had joined with the Father and Spirit for, for all eternity. He, he came out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And he, and he chose, didn't he, to go through those pains and sufferings and trials and temptations, to go through as a second Adam figure, right? As someone who, well, the first Adam failed, didn't he? He failed in the garden. In the garden, when, when the serpent came in with the temptation, the first Adam said, not your will, O God, but my will. That's what he said. He says, I'll take the fruit. You can't tell me what to do. And he failed it. And, and thus is the predicament that is called human history. But when Jesus was in the garden, you remember the garden of Gethsemane, and he was faced with the, the temptation and the struggle with the cup of God's wrath presented before him in the cross. He prayed, not my will. He said, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed the opposite of Adam, didn't he? He prayed the opposite of Adam. So that, so that he could save us, so that he would be a fitting mediator. And this is why when Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19 is talking about what took place on the cross, he writes these words, Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now hear Paul correctly here. Don't hear Paul saying that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sinful. He didn't become sinful. Jesus, the perfect Jesus, who's better than us, who's perfect, took the guilt of your sin. He took the charge of your sin upon Himself. And then He took the penalty of your sin On the cross, we receive the full wrath of God. And in so doing, he did so he could give you the righteousness. Charge his righteousness to your account as he removes the guilt of your sin, having paid for your penalty. As you trust in him, receiving his glorious righteousness so that he could for all eternity be an an unbroken, righteous, loving embrace with you. That's why I did it. Now, go through the, the names on your contact list in your phone and ask yourself, is there someone else more qualified as our mediator? Do you know anybody else divine who can receive the wrath of God? Do you know anybody who's perfectly human with, with, with not even the slightest tinge of Of sin, do you know anyone who would love you to the degree of giving their own life for you? Who has all of those qualifications? He is the only one. And only in His name is there salvation. Now, let me just think as we close of what this does for our lives. If you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, And you know that he has fully and completed that salvation and made you one with him and you have his righteousness and all of the guilt of your sin has been paid for and removed. The experience of the Christian life should be one that's full of stability. Full of foundation. Full of a firm place to stand. What's the language that's actually used in our... Our text, verse 11 of Acts 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, right? Now now take a look at your life. Has your life looked like uncertainty? Has it felt anxiety ridden? Does it always feel like contingencies are everywhere? Do you go through... Wondering about how things are going to turn out all the time. Lying awake in your bed, staring at the ceiling. Might it be that you've lost sight of Christ. Might it be that you profess Christ on Sundays, but on Mondays is a million miles away from your heart. That the foundation stone is missing from your life functionally. It doesn't mean that you ever have uncertainty or anxiety or worry or concern. Of course you do when you look at certain things in the world. But can you trace those uncertainties to the one thing that matters that is not certain? The salvation that is yours in Christ and the eternity that is won for you. Can you trace all of the uncertainty to there? And can you find in the wind and the waves a rock that does not move? Notice the stability that comes in the Christian life when you're in communion with the one mediator. But now think of the vibrancy that comes in your life when you're standing on that rock. Do you know most of the lives that we, we live are lived very cautiously, especially as we get older. We're cautious with our, our energy and our movements. We're cautious with our money. We're cautious with our time. We we begin to see how precious it is. But very often, right, these things turn over and over in on ourselves. We begin thinking about what's best for me and, and my future. But when you're really sitting in the foundation of the cornerstone of, of Christ, now there's a vibrancy that actually allows you to be able to take holy risk. Because now you see that the things that are actually around you in, in life are really the things that are passing away. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. You look at life entirely different. You now, you're setting up treasures in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. No, now you're setting your sights on, e- on eternity and there's a new self-forgetfulness and a new vibrancy and a new sense of, of calling in life that begins to emerge in your life. And if you say, and if I don't have any of that, could it be that you've lost sight of Christ? Could it be that you've lost sight of Christ? That it's become your life has become very myopic, and your world has become very small, and your variables you try to control, rather than knowing you have never been more secure in the person of Christ. Take holy risk for eternity, the vibrancy and the liveliness that comes from that. Do you see? There's a there's a rock. There's a cornerstone. There's a sweet communion and a vibrancy and there's a there's a calling that now when you begin to experience the richness of this kind of love you want to live as one who walks worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ would anything less of giving the whole of your life to Christ be enough for a savior who gave all of his life for you would anything less make sense Nothing less makes sense. And if it makes sense to you to give less, maybe you've lost sight of Christ. And if it feels like I'm talking about your Monday through Saturday, then welcome to the life of repentance, which is at the very core of the gospel, very core of the Protestant Reformation, that the truths which we're reveling in today are the truths we forget tomorrow. Tomorrow and must wake up again and confess freshly and run to Christ and grow into them and to know that the sins that you're going to commit on Tuesday, Christ is taken care of. The ones that you're going to commit on Tuesday, Christ is a full sufficient Savior, even for those. Now, doesn't that make your Tuesday different? Doesn't that make you want to run in godliness on Tuesday? Knowing that kind of love? Titus tells us that the gospel of God trains us in godliness. It trains us in godliness. Knowing that He's taking care of your sin doesn't lead to a license for sin. It leads for a motivation for godliness. For who doesn't want to be like a Savior who has loved them with this kind of love? This is the truth that we found in the Reformation again today. Today. Truths that were found in the heart of God in the pages of Scripture centuries before the Reformation. This is the gospel today as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. This is good news, friends. You have a Savior who is greater than all of your sin, who empowers you to say yes to His commands. And when you fail to keep them, forgives you all along the path that you might grow in the richness of his righteousness until he completes that which he has begun. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, I pray that this kind of gospel renewal that we need could be increasingly evident in our hearts and lives, well, even right now with you. Would you come and stir these affections? And wake up us slumbering hearts as you have today shown us the beauty of Jesus yet again. Might his beauty become increasingly beautiful to us by virtue of your work. Come as you've renewed and refreshed us now and I believe put a new song in our mouths. We continue to hymn to you this song in praise this new song of redemption. Christ, listen and listen to our hymn of praise as we join our voices with the angels in heaven and sing worthy is the lamb. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.